Good morning, my sweetheart church. So I had an adventure this week. I had a tooth pulled. I haven't had a tooth pulled since I had my wisdom teeth uh, taken out. Uh, it was rotten. Uh, the others around it are great, but this one stood out in its corruption and had to go. As we continue our journey through Luke's gospel, we discovered that there's something very rotten in Jesus' inner circle. So I, I want to take a look at that, and let's lay the groundwork for this conversation as we turn to Luke chapter 22. Pick it up, please, at verse 7. Luke chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, only Luke tells us that it was Peter and John who went and did this, sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. This is the word of the Lord. There were three uh, obligatory festivals that every Jew was expected to make pilgrimage to attend. Uh, and Passover was one of them. Passover, of course, uh, commemorated the deliverance of God's people from Egypt many hundreds of years earlier. You will recall that God called Moses to go to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, I don't think so. And so God persuaded him uh, with 10 plagues uh, of various sorts. He turned the water into blood, and there were a plague of frogs, and a plague of lice, and a plague of boils, and, and so forth. They were not pleasant, and each time Pharaoh would relent until the plague was lifted, and then, of course, Pharaoh reneged on the deal. So finally, God sent the worst plague of all. The tenth plague was the angel of death. The angel of death would come through the city that night, and would strike down the firstborn son of every family, from the highborn to the slave, even to the animal, the livestock. All of the firstborn sons would die that night. There was, however, one way to avoid that fate, and it was that you would slaughter a, a perfect with a lamb without blemish, and you would spread the blood of that lamb over the lintel, the, the top piece over the door, and the, the, uh, the, door, the door posts on either side. And when the angel of death made its way through the, uh, the city that night, every time it saw the blood of the lamb on the doorstep of the house, the doorposts of the house, it would pass over and everyone inside would be safe. But of course, outside of that, it was a death sentence. In theology, we have something that's called types or typology. In the Old Testament, we see all kinds of types which are a, a foretaste or a glimpse, a, a, a partial glimpse of something that will be fulfilled later in the New Testament. Almost always, it has to do with Jesus. But we get these occasional glimpses, these foretastes of what will be fulfilled fully in Jesus. That's called a type in the Old Testament. There is no more vivid type 
of Jesus Christ than the Passover lamb. The perfect lamb of God that's slain to offer protection from God's righteous and deserved judgment. Only those who sit under the protection of that blood will be saved. Every Monday, Thursday, and we've got another one coming up sooner than you can imagine. We re-celebrate this meal that Jesus shared with his 12 closest friends. A meal that Jesus redefined around himself. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is poured out for you. It is, of course, the meal that we call Holy Communion. We will share it together next week. And today, however, Luke draws particular attention to one of the guests that was at that table. So turn with me back to Luke 22 again. I want to start with the first few verses of Luke 22. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus and, uh, to them. And they were glad, the, word, the Greek word is delighted, they were delighted that he would betray them to them in this way. And they agreed to give him money. And so Judas consented, and he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. Guy Fox, Marcus Brutus, Benedict Arnold, What do all of these have in common? They're traitors, all of them. Guy Fawkes led the unsuccessful gunpowder plot to blow up Parliament. Marcus Brutus, of course, shared in the assassination of his friend, Julius Caesar, et tu Brute? And Benedict Arnold tried to pass off American uh, plans to the British spy, Major John Andre. All of them were infamous traitors, but no list such as that, is complete without the name of him who has become synonymous with treachery and betrayal. Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus. Have you ever been betrayed? I'll bet you have. It is one of the most painful experiences in human life, isn't it? To be betrayed by someone that you trusted, someone you knew, someone you loved, someone you thought had their best interest in, in, in heart, at heart for you. Is there anything more painful than those of you who discovered that your spouse had broken their wedding vows? Betrayal. Or that a friend has revealed information that had been shared with them. You'd shared it with them in confidence, and they've betrayed that confidence. Or a trusted colleague has connived to steal your idea or steal your position. Or a business partner has ripped you off. Any of these ever happened to you? Some of my most painful ministry moments over the last 37 years have involved betrayal by people that I trusted, people that I'd given myself to, people that I'd ministered to, people who I'd tried to help and who I felt turned on me, abandoned me, betrayed me. It is excruciatingly painful, and Jesus understands that very well. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve, was of the number of the twelve. This is one of the most distressing passages that we will find in the Bible. 
How is it possible? Judas, who was among the twelve, Judas, who was one of Jesus' mighty men, his inner circle. We don't have the story of how Judas was called to be a disciple in the same way that we have James and John and, and Peter and Andrew and Matthew, for instance. But we have to assume that there was something similar to it, that Jesus one day approached Judas, whom he had paid attention to, and he approached him personally and warmly and said, Judas Iscariot, will you follow me? And Judas said, I don't mind if I do. And he did. But was it a real calling, we might ask? Was Judas a true disciple of Jesus? We don't know his heart, of course. But there's something I find fascinating in Matthew's parallel accounts of of the story. In Matthew chapter 10, you have the list of all of the disciples. That's found in every one of the Gospels. But Matthew ends his list, as does every Gospel, with the same name, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And that might be the end of it. Except you go to the very next verse, and we read this. Jesus sent out these twelve. Not these eleven plus dum-dum Judas. No, no, no. Jesus sent out these twelve with these instructions. Proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. These twelve did this. That included Judas. Presumably, Judas also preached the kingdom of God was at hand. Presumably, Judas also healed the sick and raised the dead and and cleansed lepers and cast out evil spirits. Either that or he was the worst ministry partner ever. I wonder, was Judas like the last one that's chosen on the playground? Only Judas was left. Then Thomas is saying, no, Lord, don't, don't make me take Judas. He is so lame. I don't think so. I think when the time came, they stepped off. Whoever he was partnered with, two by two, and Judas carried out his assignment, empowered by the Holy Spirit, inspired by Jesus, performing great miracles. And when they returned to report to Jesus, I'll bet that Judas was as giddy as the rest of them, excited to share what God had done through their ministry. But somehow, somewhere along the way, Judas's heart shifted. Luke tells us in our passage that Satan entered Judas to conspire with him. He entered him. He could conspire with the, the temple leaders who hated Jesus and were looking for a way to kill him. So what are we to do with that verse? Was Judas a disciple of Jesus? Was he possessed by Satan? Is it possible for a true disciple to be possessed? Was Judas, just a, a, a cruel pawn of God who was, had no choice in the matter, who was abused in this way. And, and, and what does this teach us about our own spiritual vulnerability? Can Satan have his way with us if he wants to? These are important questions. I want to start by taking a look, first of all, at the, the story of Judas and then come back to those more personal questions near the end of my message. Here's how I map out Judas's downward spiral into treachery and ultimately collaboration with the devil. He didn't start there, but it was a downward spiral and, and started, first of all, with Satan's assault, which was opportunistic. 
Satan's attack on Judas was opportunistic. I want to remind you of a passage back in early on in this chapter. We covered it a year ago, Luke chapter 4. The first thing that happened to Jesus after he was baptized, remember, was that he went into the wilderness to be tempted. He was led by the Holy Spirit, according to Luke, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil tried unsuccessfully in three different ways to derail Jesus, to discourage him, to distract him before he even got started. But he was unsuccessful. And we read at the end of those three temptations, verse 13 of chapter 4, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Those are haunting words. Those, suddenly you realize, wow, that is just waiting to, to have the rest of that story written, written out somewhere down the line. He departed him until the opportune time. He was looking for an opportunity. From the start of Jesus' ministry, Satan was looking for an opportunity to harm him, to destroy him, to defame him, to derail him. And he found it in Judas. I don't think he knew it was Judas from the start. The devil is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything like God knows. So I don't think he knew from the start that Judas was the guy. But Jesus did. In John chapter 6, which is really early in the gospel story, we read this, Jesus said, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Wow, that sounds pretty clear. So what else do we know of Judas? How about this, what was his job for the group, do you know? He was the treasurer, he was the treasurer of the group. In John chapter 12, when a woman anointed Jesus' feet with expensive oil, Judas complained about the waste of the money. But John, the gospel writer, comments, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So not only was Judas the treasurer of the group, he was a crook. I was thinking about his assignment to this task for a moment this week. I thought, who would have been the best candidate for treasurer of the 12 disciples? Matthew, exactly right. Matthew's the, the tax collector. All his life he had been dealing with money. Surely the Lord could have used Matthew's redeemed accounting skills to be the treasurer of the group. And I just imagine Peter standing up in front of the guys and saying, you know, we've got to have to have money, and someone's going to have to handle the money so we can buy our food. Matthew, how about you, Dutton? And Judas says, no, 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 I got this. And he butts in, and the deal was done. Or something like that. The old saying, follow the money, certainly applies in this story. Every gospel mentions money in connection with Judas. Luke tells us in our text that he went to the temple officials and offered up Jesus for a price, and they paid it. Matthew adds a little more detail. He tells us what the price was. What was the cost of betraying Jesus? 30 pieces of silver. That was the price of a slave. So Judas sold out Jesus for the price of the slave. No wonder the temple officials were delighted. It was a good deal for them. Satan was opportunistic. He waited patiently to harm Jesus by picking off one of his 12, Judas. And he found in Judas his greatest weakness, which was money. 
I wonder if this is what was in the Apostle Paul's mind when he later wrote to his young disciple Timothy saying, the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not money that's the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Satan's assault on Judas was opportunistic. He looked for the opportunity and he pounced. It was also progressive. He found his vulnerability, this chink in his armor, and he just kept chipping away over the three years. Judas didn't start out on the devil's team, but he ultimately switched sides. Satan looked for an opportunity and found it in Judas's greed. Imagine that. Even after all of those private sessions when Jesus was teaching just the twelve, even after witnessing Jesus' breathtaking displays of power in healing and, and cleansing lepers and raising people from the dead and casting out demons. I wonder if Judas ever imagined that the demons that he saw Jesus cast out, the demons he himself cast out on his two-by-two two mission would one day come and take residence in him. He didn't start out as the devil, but he slid progressively in that direction, step by step, slip by slip. Oh, so patiently the devil lured Judas into his trap. Luke tells us that Satan entered Judas just before the Passover celebration. We just read that. Apparently, he left him for a time because John then tells us that he re-entered Judas later when they were at the Last Supper. It happened when Jesus handed him the morsel at the meal. Now, can you imagine that? You have just received the bread of life from Jesus, the bread of life. And you take it, and you dip, you eat it, and then the very next line reads, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. How is that possible? Right then, I think he had yet one more chance to choose Jesus. One more chance to say, I choose you. I choose the bread of life. Instead, he chose Satan. And in that moment, he went over the cliff. And God confirmed him in his treachery, just as God confirmed Pharaoh in the hardness of his own heart. Judas's decline into malignity was a process of one denial after another after another. He steadily became the devil that Jesus predicted he would become. And surely Jesus, as he prayed that night in Gethsemane following the Last Supper, his prayers would have included this prophetic and pathetic cry that is found in Psalm 41. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, I, who ate my bread, has lifted up his foot against me, lifted up his heel against me. So what do we do with this tragic story? From the moment of his temptation, Jesus was at war with Satan. His ministry of exorcism, of casting evil spirits out, which he, by the way, delegated also to his disciples, that was a centerpiece of his spiritual battle. His victory over evil spirits was a sign of the authority that he had. Everyone recognized that to be so. You cannot read the New Testament without realizing that we have a spiritual enemy, which the Bible calls Satan, that he has minions, which the Bible calls demons, and that they exist for the purpose of possessing, oppressing, suppressing, repressing, and depressing the people of God. 
So maybe the first question that ought to come out of this story for us is, is it possible for a Christian to be possessed by the devil? Now the standard answer, I will tell you, is no. Because the Holy Spirit lives in us, that's the only way that you become a Christian, is the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. It is not possible for evil to dwell there as well at the same time. But I'm telling you, Judas, the story of Judas is a cautionary tale. It is disturbing to us and should be. Maybe he wasn't a sincere follower of Jesus. Maybe the Holy Spirit never really took root in his life. Maybe Judas was an exception to the rule, but honestly, in these days, in our world, when evil runs as rampant as it ever has before, I think we would be foolish to dismiss the malignant power at work that is seeking to defeat and discourage even the true followers of Jesus. So I'm going to say something that is perhaps controversial for some of you. Whatever you call it, I think it is possible, it is possible, for believers in Jesus to open themselves up to an attack from the, from the enemy, to even enter us in a way that brings about unnecessary pain and betrayal and death and destruction. And I believe that because many of the writers of the New Testament repeat the same theme. For instance, the apostle Peter, the chief apostle, he he warns us of this possibility in his first letter when he writes, Be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like roar, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Who's he writing to? He's writing to believers. He said, You better watch out because the devil still wants to get you. He wants to destroy you. Then James, James in his letter urges his readers to resist the devil and he will flee from you. And Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, says, give no opportunity to the devil. Again, he's writing to the believers at Ephesus, and he's writing these words, give no opportunity to the devil. That word opportunity might be better translated foothold. Foothold. It is from the Greek word tapos, which is a word that means a literal piece of land, a piece of geography. Think of a topographical map. He's saying, don't you give even a foothold to the devil in your, in your life. So Peter and James and Paul all seem to be warning us that we can open up a place, a tapas in our heart, in our person that Satan will gladly occupy. And we need only look at the tragic story of Judas to see how devastating that can be. Resist him, Peter says. Resist him and he will flee from you, James says. Give no foothold to the devil, Paul says. So how do we, followers of Jesus, fight that good fight? Well, touching back on what I said earlier, the first thing is we don't give him an opportunity. Satan is an opportunist. Steal the opportunities away. Satan, we are told by Peter, is always prowling around, always looking for an opportunity always looking for a foothold, an opening into someone's life. In Judas's case, it was his love of money, but every one of us has a vulnerability. Every one of us has an area of weakness that Satan knows about and loves to exploit. Our life group talked about this last week, and one friend of mine courageously said, my foothold is lust. I, all my life, I have struggled with lust. For others here, perhaps it is power, or perhaps it is pride, or perhaps it is vanity, or hedonism. 
But the devil knows your vulnerability and he is looking for a chance to exploit it. Don't give him the opportunity. See him coming. Cut him off short. Another opportunity that presents itself is when we dabble with occultic practices. I wonder if you saw the Amazonian chiefess who pronounced a a spiritist, a shamanist a benediction, blessing upon the opening of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. She, she, uh, this was a spiritual incantation, but I guarantee it wasn't the Holy Spirit. And at the end of, of it, she went to the, each of the leaders and blew into their face, blew their, their spirit into their face. Now, you might say, oh, it's just kind of weird or funny or no big deal. I would never receive such a blessing. I would never receive such a blessing. Why would you dabble in such things? Why would you open yourself up to the evil spiritual forces that Jesus says are at work even now? Ouija boards, horoscopes, fortune telling. These are not benign practices. These are dangerous practices. The other day I heard an ad for California psychics. Any of you heard that ad? They brag. They say Maine has the best lobsters, Texas has the best barbecue, but California, we've got the best psychics, the best spiritists. And uh, their tagline is, California psychics, the joy of certainty. Yeah, the certainty that you are sipping poison every time you make that phone call. Give no opportunity to the devil. Every person here knows of their area of vulnerability. Every person here knows when you are moving into a dangerous space. Every person knows when you are about to make a fateful decision that opens up a tapas for the devil to take hold. When you open, open up that porn site, when you choose to repeat that juicy bit of, of gossip that you have to pass on, when you lay down that already overheated credit card for one more purchase that you cannot afford, when you take one more bite that you ought to stop eating, when you take one more drink that you ought not to drink, you know when Satan is whispering to you, go ahead, do it, do it. Give him no foothold. Recognize it, rebuke him out loud. We ought to be talking back to the devil, we Christians. We ought to be talking back. That's what Jesus did. He talked back to the devil. He quoted scripture right back to him. We ought to be doing the same thing. Satan, I see what you are trying to do in the name of Jesus. You leave me alone. It would be amazing what would happen if you could speak those words at just the time when you were finding yourself in real temptation. Paul told the Ephesians, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against a spiritual enemy. You better gird your loins for the fight. Satan is on the prowl. He wants to take you out. Don't let him. Recognize him. Resist him. Talk back to him. Fight back against him. We better do it. But here's one more thing that we must do if we're going to prevail in this spiritual onslaught. Never, 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 never give up on the forgiveness of Jesus. Never, 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 never give up on the grace of Jesus. You are never too far gone, never too dirty or bent that Jesus can't reach you and forgive you and restore you. 
You're never so polluted by the indwelling of the devil that the Holy Spirit of Jesus cannot drive him out and restore you to complete health and wholeness. You know the rest of Judas' story. When he saw what had happened to Jesus, he regretted it. And he went back to the temple leaders and he tried to unwind the deal. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But it was too late. They weren't about to undo that deal. And so we are told Judas threw the silver into the temple and went out and hung himself. I could be wrong on this. You might differ with me on this. I still don't think it was too late for him. I just think he went to the wrong place. And I think he threw, threw the money at the wrong feet. What if Judas instead had gone to Calvary? What if Judas instead had gone to the feet of the Savior as he hung on that cross? What if Judas instead had thrown the 30 pieces of blood money at the feet of Jesus and said, forgive me? Jesus' words from the cross were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, was Judas beyond the power of that prayer? Was he beyond the power of that forgiveness? I don't think so. Alas, instead of running to the foot of the cross, instead of throwing his, his money at the feet of the cross, he did what he did, and then in his self-loathing and his revulsion and his guilt, he was driven to suicide instead of into the arms of Jesus who had once tenderly said, Judas of Iscariot, follow me. If you feel this day like Satan has a stronghold on your life, if you feel that he is pounding away at your area of vulnerability, if you feel guilt and revulsion and self-loathing over your failures and you have begun to give up hope, don't you dare. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't give the devil a stronghold. Jesus is reaching out to you with the offer of forgiveness and restoration. And even now, it is not too late for you to take that gift. I wish I knew the stories of each person here, Lord, but I might not be able to bear it because I know that in this gathering, in this large gathering, there are so many who are in a place of revulsion, of self-loathing, a sense of pain and guilt because they feel like they have betrayed you. And they likely have. But Jesus, I pray that you would remind us once again of the breadth of your grace, the breadth of your forgiveness. However deep our sin, however much we have dabbled with the, the temptations of the evil one, However much of a stronghold the devil has in our heart, in our life, in our topos, in, within, however much it is, you are stronger still, and you can boot him out. You can cast him out. And so this day, we claim the power of Jesus Christ over every person in this church, over every family, over every marriage, over every child, over every individual, we claim the powerful name of Jesus over the enemy who would seek to do us harm and ill. We declare that Jesus Christ is the victor and that, the, and that Satan must bow before him and ultimately he will be destroyed by the returning Christ, Christus Victor. 
But Lord Jesus, until that time comes, would you help us to live as if we have the victory that you have given to us? Would you cause us to be aware of the the machinations of the enemy? When we see him coming, would you cause us to have the courage to speak against him, to rebuke him, to renounce him in your powerful name, to drive him away? We claim your power. We plead your blood over this church, over its present, over its future. May the name of Jesus be glorified. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. And it is in that matchless name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.
Shut the door, keep out the devil. Shut the door, keep the devil in the night. Shut the door, keep out the devil. Light the candle, everything's all right. Light the candle, everything's all right. Oh, Satan is an evil charmer. He's looking for a soul to hurt. And without your holy armor, he will eat you for dessert. <laughs> Shut the door, keep out the devil. Shut the door, keep the devil in the night. Shut the door, keep out the devil. Light the candle, everything's all again. Shut the door, keep out the devil. Shut the door, keep the devil in the night. Shut the door, keep out the devil. Light the candle, everything's all right. 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 The devil is like a lion, ravaging lion, prowling around seeking someone to destroy. Resist him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't give him a topos. Don't give him one ounce of dirt in your, in your life. One speck of dirt to stand on in, in your heart. You have the chance to do this. You have the power to do this. You have the authority to, to do this as a, a redeemed child of God. And all you got to do is claim the blood of Christ and resist him and say, no, leave me alone. Leave my family alone. Leave my spouse alone. Leave my children alone. We better start doing this because he is on the prowl. But imagine if we as emissaries go out into that world and we do battle with him. We can, we better, we must, and we, we shall, we shall. Following this service, we are going to have a, a town hall, an opportunity for us to hear the progress that's being made with our senior pastor search. I invite you to stick around. If you have kids, please hustle off, pick them up and uh, come back. We will delay our start for just a, a little bit. If you uh, have some things in your own life that you think is a, an, an entree point, a tapas in your life, and you'd like some help in, in being delivered from that, our, our, our prayer team would love nothing better than to do battle with the enemy of your soul. And as we say every week, none of what I've said here is possible just by gritting your teeth and trying harder. It is only possible if we have more of the Holy Spirit who is at work in our lives. So let's get a refill. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you.